All right. Awesome. Room is loading. Are you having any uh, cognac tonight? Uh, not for this conversation. Not just yet. <laughs> I think I'll. I think I'll wait on that. I've been trying to drink decaf green tea at night. How's that? <laughs> yeah, that's a lot milder than than yak. Welcome everybody. We're just letting the room load. We'll give it another minute or two. All right. Actually, I see. Uh, I see old Fab in the audience. Ah, hey, Fab. I'm going to ask him up in case he's always has extra good questions. Hey, Fab. Hey, Mark. Hey, Ben. How are you doing? Yeah, man, pretty good. Just home in Harlem. Excited about this uh, great conversation coming up. Yeah, this should be good. We're mostly, uh, you know, normally we have different answers to questions. So that should be good. That was that was kind of an understatement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we we do fight a lot. Well, it's going to be great to to hear and to see and to get a to get a snapshot of how you two guys um, figure out all these amazing things and stuff that you're going to move forward with, and things you're not going to move forward with, or with all these exciting things coming up. <laughs> yeah, it could be a little scary to hear the process, actually. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so I think we can go ahead and get started. Fab, I'm going to very gently uh, bump you. Let's see. Um, so uh, let's start. So first of all, thank you, everybody, for joining um, the inaugural tryout uh, of a new show that my partner Ben and I are considering uh, putting on on a regular basis, if it goes well. Um, it's called One-on-One <laughs> -on -one with A and Z. Um, it's actually inspired by um, our kind of uh, hero uh, of Silicon Valley and uh, being a CEO and running companies and creating technology, Andy Grove, who in the 1980s, he had a, uh, he had some, he used the most advanced communication technology of his time in the 1980s. He had a newspaper column uh, in the San Jose Mercury News called One on One with Andy Grove. And in fact, there's a book of his columns that I, I highly recommend people buy. It might be out of print, but uh, he, he would, he would take, uh, take questions and, and sort of, it was a very rare opportunity for somebody to uh, ask, people ask questions of somebody like him. So, you know, we're no Andy Grove, um, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do our best. Um, so we put out a call for questions on Twitter and we got, I would say, an extraordinary range of very, very smart questions. I would say I was, I, I was, I was actually uh, very impressed by the, 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 the depth and seriousness of the questions. Um, I would say for people who have given up on the idea that there is intelligence on the internet, um, at least these threads, <laughs> at least these threads refuted that. And so thank you everybody who submitted questions. Um, we lined up a dozen um, that we're going to start with today. And then if this goes well, we'll continue to solicit uh, and we'll do new questions. And then um, the goal, uh, this is at least starting out as a, as a guest-free show. And so the goal is to um, is basically to, to, to engage in, in, in questions uh, from, from, uh, from anybody who wants to ask them uh, on Twitter. And then um, uh, maybe we'll argue about the answers every now and then. Um, so I, uh, will, uh, start, uh, us right off in the deep end of the pool, uh, with a question from a, a Twitter user named the network hub, um, which is, I would love an expansion into the wartime and peacetime CEO concept. Um, and then I would add to that, where do you see wartime and peacetime CEOs in the industry today? And so Ben, maybe you could start, you, you wrote in your first book, uh, quite a yeah. bit on this topic of wartime and peacetime CEOs, uh, for people who haven't read it, maybe you could, um, basically articulate the theory of what you meant by that. And then I, I would love to know, like, where, where, do, where do you see these, these two types operating in the, in the, in the, uh, in the world today? 
Yeah, so that, that that's a great question. Um, so you know, peacetime work time CEO is uh, the, the original blog post was kind of about these two different modes of operation, and um, you know, I wrote it because actually Andy Grove was one of the inspirations for it. Interestingly, but I wrote it because you know when you read business books, um, it's always about you know delegating management and don't micromanage and, you know, whatever you do, never publicly humiliate anybody or anything like that, right? And then you read the stories about kind of the most legendary CEOs like Steve Jobs and Andy Grove, and they were always publicly humiliating people. And, you know, they oftentimes would drop down to incredibly low levels and make very, very specific decisions about things. And so I wanted to kind of articulate, you know, my interpretation of what they were doing. And it really came down to these two modes that you're in when you're CEO, one being kind of wartime and one being peacetime. And I, I kind of wrote it to convey, you know, at the time, the feeling of what each one was. And, you know, uh, you know, the peacetime CEO doesn't you know, care about the details. They let, the, you know, their people handle those. And I think I wrote something like, you know, a wartime CEO cares about a speck of dust on a gnat's ass if it, you know, gets in the way of the prime directive. And so that kind of feeling of being all over everything and really much more dictatorial versus more empowering and um, kind of enabling uh, was the contrast in the original post. I think the thing that, um, I missed or I didn't do a good job of explaining in the original post is why you're in one mode or another. <laughs> um, like what is peacetime and what is wartime? And, you know, I think that peacetime, you know, if the general direction of the company is correct and you're expanding and growing the original idea, then peacetime is really good because it harnesses, I think, maximum creativity in an organization. Um, and you kind of, and everybody understands, you hired everybody in for a certain kind of job and a certain kind of strategy, and then you train them in a certain way. And then you you really want to unleash them to do their thing. Um, but that's different when, you know, the company is in a crisis or has to change directions very quickly. And the way I would kind of describe it is, you know, if you're building the American military for the Cold War, uh, you know, you build it in a certain way with certain kind of weapons, certain kinds of strategies, certain kinds of training for military personnel. And then one day you wake up and you find that you're fighting ISIS and everything about what you built is wrong. Um, and now you got to get your leadership from where they are to where you are. And that uh, generally requires a very different mode. And that's, you know, often when you go into wartime, because if you let them kind of get there on their own, it's going to take too long. Uh, and, you know, I, I just give one quick example of this and then. You know, I, I was working with a company who got you know very hard hit by the pandemic due to the nature of their industry, um, but they had been a really successful kind of <clears throat> company growing and and doing things. And you know, they had some what I would say peacetime executives, uh, you know, very good, like a really credible uh, you know head of HR and so forth. Um, but you know, the you know they they kind of. Uh, you know, we're having trouble with attrition and so forth and wanted to kind of give this very kind of generous re-upping of everybody's equity. 
And that that's just like a very peacetime idea. It's kind of, you know, let's retain everybody. You know, we need them all because we're building this big thing. And, you know, we've got to compete with Google and so forth on that. But the real situation was we couldn't even afford to keep the people we had. <laughs> so what were we doing? Uh, we need a wartime mentality. No, no, no. Like, we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is we're going to find the, the, you know, the exact people we need and we're going to overpay them. And then like if other people quit, like we're going to live with that because we have a leaky boat and like we can't carry all these people to shore. Uh, and so that, you know, that that's kind of the difference in mentality to expand on that original thing. Um, if you look at today, you know, companies are in peacetime. I think Salesforce.com is clearly in peacetime. They're sort of, you know, for the most part, you know, expanding a major footprint, a giant kind of system of record um, lock-in type of position. And they're looking for more and more ways to enhance that and, you know, protect themselves a bit. But it's not dictated by the CEO, uh, you know, from on, you know, every move that the company is making. Um, you know, and you'd contrast that with, I think, Zuck said he was going into wartime. And, you know, he's got really specific crisis on his hands with, uh, you know, what's happened with social media and, and kind of the perception of it and so forth. And so he's, he's clearly in wartime mode. And I give that back to you, Mark. Yeah, how two two follow questions for you. So one is, how long can a company stay in wartime mode before it 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 breaks in some way? Yeah, no, like I, I think you can go for a very long time. I mean, I think that you know, in some ways, like Jobs always ran Apple that way, and I, and I don't think Cook does like nearly as much, although it has some remnants of it. But the the, the CEO like has to be able to organize in a way where he or she can engage at a very, very fine level of detail on, you know, what ends up being like really minute decisions in some ways, you know, right down to, you know, very specific things about a product or something, because you, you, you can't afford to get anything wrong. You can't yep. afford to make a misstep. And so if you're in a mode where you can't afford to make a misstep, then that can be done. It takes a very specific kind of leader, which is why most CEOs can't actually run in the other mode. <laughs> if they're wartime, they run in wartime. If they're peacetime, they run in peacetime. Generally can't can't switch modes. Yeah, well, you could you could argue that like history shows that there are two different, you know, there's both those two kinds of political leaders also, right? And so you've, and you've got yeah. sort of the fam famous example of Winston Churchill, you know, who, who was, you know, not that, you know, necessarily like, you know, destined to be like prime minister and play the role that he played until until World War II. And then Sort of immediately upon the end of World War II, he was tossed right out. Yeah, because he was just drunk at that point, right? Like you know, <laughs> he just well, he couldn't. He was too bored. Like it wasn't yeah. intense enough. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No. Right. For sure, it's really hard. Um, it's really hard to find a, somebody you can change personalities in that sense. Yeah, and then the other question, and you you brought this up, and so I'm, I'm keying off what you said is, you know, the the wartime CEOs, there is this pattern, or I guess question. Is there this pattern where they do tend to humiliate people in public? Um, and when that happens, um, uh, you know, to the extent that you believe that's a pattern, like, is that basically like 100% always over the line? Like they're just pushing things too far or are they, are they doing it to prove a, a necessary point? Um, you know, should it be part of the standard toolkit? Um, how do you think about that? Yeah, so I think they're good about it. It's not arbitrary. It's to drive home a really important point into the culture. Um, so, you know, if you, you know, jobs would do it to kind of just say, look, we're not good enough here. Like, 
whatever, whatever, whatever. Like this is just not good enough. It's not Apple standard. And my one of my favorite examples is Andy Grove. Um, he, uh, you know, he was a crazy about being on time, and and that made sense in Intel because Intel had to be high precision because they're making chips and everything was about chip yield and all these kinds of things. So like being on time, you know, it was part of that. Part of like we don't make mistakes. We we are a highly disciplined organization. And uh, so he's at a meeting and, you know, he's running Intel and Intel's, you know, a giant, most important company in Silicon Valley. And somebody comes in late to the meeting and he looks at him and he says, all I have in this world is time and you're wasting it. And I can't even imagine how that would make that person feel. <laughs> but I guarantee you, nobody who was in that meeting or heard about that meeting or knew anybody in that meeting was ever late to a meeting again at Intel. Um, so it, it's kind of a a technique for changing broad scale behavior, um, you know, with a, with a very sharp message and, and look, it's a sacrifice. It's a Confucian idea. It's, you know, the good of the whole is more important than the good of an individual. Right. Okay, good. Um, I'm sure this, this, this will probably already generate follow-up questions, which we'll certainly be happy to take for next time, but let's move to the uh, next topic, um, which is uh, very, very topical, very relevant. And this is, I, I paired two questions here, so I'll read them both. So um, Amon Bedruden um, asks, are there, any are there any noticeable differences you've noticed about the characteristics of successful founding teams or let's say you know, startups and, and, and tech companies in a remote work from, work from home world versus in person? What are your portfolio companies learning uh, to do that other startups might be missing? And then uh, Rosali uh, Sepla says, what are your thoughts about VCs, investors, and startup founders looking outside of Silicon Valley to build? Is it realistic? Is it permanent? Is it possible to build something big and magical in Miami or Houston that looks and feels as successful as what was built in San Francisco? And I have I have a thousand thoughts on this, but Ben, please start. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wonder if we're going to agree. Um, so... <sighs> You know, it is pretty new, the, the work from home thing. So it's a little, I would just say the jury's still out on the one hand. On the other hand, like the productivity, like, like just look at the outputs of the startups um, in this work from home mode. It is very impressive uh, in terms of just anything, you know, like time to revenue, features built, this, that. Any way you'd measure velocity of a startup, it's really hard for us to tell um, that they're working from home. Uh, I would just say that across the board. I do feel, and I'm not sure about this, that there used to be a bit more of an advantage to the really magnetic, hyper-energetic, um, charismatic CEO when they had everybody in the office than they have now over the more low-key, introverted um, CEO. Like I, I do feel like that gap closed a bit in terms of you know assembling the world class team and doing all those things I, I just feel like the even more uh, nerdy CEOs have you know gained ground on that a bit hmm. um, but uh, you know it, it is that is a little hard to tell um, you know some of the <sighs> people are using I would say the people who are executing the best are the ones who are you know, just really over communicating on everything, frequency of uh, all hands, really amazing onboarding ideas, how they get people oriented into the company, um, you know, and those kinds of things, you know, really aggressive use of all the tools, um, you know, not just 
Slack and Zoom, but every new tool that comes out, um, you know, doing all their, you know, continuing with all their events online and all these kinds of things. So uh, just, you know, the people who are really leaning in and acting like work from home is going to last a while, I think are doing a kind of more effective job uh, with their people than, than people who are just waiting for it to go away. Um, and then on the, well, why don't I stop there and let you answer that part of the question and then we'll talk about Miami. Yeah, so absolutely. So um, so I'll say a couple of things. So one is, look, I I am just like completely flabbergasted, you know, as I I know a lot of people are by this experiment that we've been running. Like if you had asked me in, you know, December of 2019, you know, what would happen if basically all tech companies sent everybody home? um, You know, I I would have predicted catastrophe. Like I I am just like positively shocked and enormously impressed. Um, Like I go so far as to say, like, I don't actually know of any tech companies that have not run well through this, through, through this, through this whole process. Which is just like, which is just astonishing. Like I would have, I would have predicted disaster. Um, and it's just because, you know, we just, we, those of us who've been a business for all, we just have like so much experience for what it means for everybody to be in the office and how valuable that is. And the idea that you're just kind of blowing that up and going to this totally new mode of operation and you're not going to have like huge negative fallout has been like incredibly surprising to me. Um, and so like my views on like what's possible now have like really broadened, uh, really broadened out and expanded. You know, to, to, to the point where I might get carried away on this topic, but like I, I, I think the world has really fundamentally changed. Um, the other observation I would make is we're running all these experiments, and the experiments are fantastic, but the experiments, of course, are all incredibly unnatural, right? Because it's not just that we sent everybody home; it's also that we sent everybody home. You know, a because of a pandemic. You know, b we shut down all the schools and sent all the kids home, right? Which is a you know real real challenge for parents. Um, you know, C, we told everybody they can't like visit their friends and family, you know, D, we told everybody they can't go to like restaurants or like sporting events or shows or like dinner parties or anything. And so we've run, like, I I think I'm ready to make the argument. Like we've run the harsh version of the experiment. Um, when we come out of this, I think is when we get to run, I would say the more normal version of the experiment, right. Which is like, okay, like what if you could work from home, but you could also like your kids could go to school and you could go out to dinner and like, you could go see your family. Right. Um, and so, like, however well things are working now, like, I think you could make a case that, you know, the companies that continue to do, you know, continue to be either total or partial work from home, um, things will go even better than they're going now. Ben, would you agree with that? Or do you think that's too optimistic? Um, I, I think it's certainly possible. I think that, um, you know, one thing is... <clears throat> You know, young people in particular, like their social network is at at work, and they mm-hmm. value that. It's one of the things that you know we've had. I, we've had comments from our own employees saying, you know, all the joy is gone from the job. Like right. <laughs> the thing I like most was being around the people, all these smart people, and so great, and I get to see them. And uh, you know, it, it's like a very big part of my life. And being remote, you know, that's gone. So. I, I think that's a real thing. And then the other one, you know, they, you get into things like career development and, you know, how that works. And, and I, I kind of think in a way it would be better work from home because, you know, maybe less politicking and all that kind of thing. But um, I think that's an open question. And then, uh, you know, the final open question for me is just, you know, kind of information and sales. Like, so in a meeting, um, my friend, Steve Stout had a, had a great, Thing he said to me on this, which is, look, the information you get, you know, particularly in a sales situation before the meeting and after the meeting is usually more valuable than the information you get in the meeting. Um, and so I do think there's real competitive advantage to, 
to being face to face because there's not really a before and after a meeting on Zoom. Uh, so, so I, you know, it's it's definitely going to be interesting to find out. I'm not sure. Yeah, and then the other thing that I really noticed is that my extrovert friends, um, you know, which are, you know, a lot of the people who are running companies or senior executives in companies, you know, basically the big debate that they're having is, you know, do we all go back to work? Do we all go back to the office? In fact, you know, maybe for, for the reason you just mm-hmm. described, um, uh, you know, because they like being around people, um, you know, or do we go to a hybrid model, right? And so the hybrid model, of course, is one in which, you know, maybe people are in the office, you know, three days a week or four days a week or even two days a week. And, you know, maybe there's flex and, you know, they're, they're starting to work on like, well, how do we have, you know, how do we do meetings and our meetings all on Zoom or do we have, you know, conference rooms plus Zoom setups and so forth. And so there, there's sort of this kind of hybrid thing. And I think, you know, probably the, my sense is the median Silicon Valley company is probably assuming the world will go hybrid, um, you know, for the most part. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I noticed is that my introvert friends have a very different point of view on this, um, which basically is like, basically it's like, finally the world has discovered that all this like in-person stuff is not necessary. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and in fact, you know, um, my introvert friends say I'm getting a lot more joy out of the way things are working now. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I have one company where like, there was this actually very interesting form of feedback in the survey that they did last fall, which basically is uh, the engineers were all of a sudden like, ah, finally we're on a level playing field with all the sales guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. cause like, we're not just getting talked over in every meeting. Um, and so, and then, and then what the introverts point to basically is like, there are actually two kinds of tech projects that have been very successful over the last, you know, 30 years that never involved offices, right? And, and one form is open source, right? Mm-hmm. Which I, I don't think there's been a single open source project, you know, including Linux and GNU and, you know, many, many, many Emacs and many, many other things over the years, uh, you know, where there was ever, quote, unquote, an office. You know, it was, it was it was always fully distributed, and in fact, you know, primarily, you know, completely online communication. You know, tremendous amount of basically, you know, in the old days, you know, Usenet and, and IRC. You know, these days, it would be like, you know, whatever Slack and and things like that. Um, and then, you know, more recently, crypto, right? Um, in which, you know, many of the you know world's leading crypto projects, even the ones that are set up as companies, you know, just kind of assumed, you know, default remote. Uh, you know, honestly, to the point where it was making me nervous last year as we were we were funding more mm-hmm. more crypto companies that were were remote first. And so what those companies basically say is, look, like it's all in the mechanics of how you build, you know, basically the communication infrastructure and the tooling. Um, and if you build that stuff all properly, um, uh, you know, you're, you're going to basically be able to run these things fully remote in perpetuity. And yeah, some people might not like it because they want an office to go to. But for the people who like that kind of thing, they'll be hyper productive in that kind of environment. Um, yeah. Anyway, so what what's your view on that? Yeah, well, I think that with both kind of open source companies and uh, well, and crypto companies kind of are open source for the most part. Um, right. You don't, the, the thing that they don't tend to do at least, you know, in that mode is kind of sell to organizations. And like, if you sell to individuals um, or individuals within organizations or that kind of thing, that the whole face to face thing is, I think, a lot more overrated than if you're kind of trying to whatever convince IBM to go wall to wall slack or something like that then that that becomes really complex to do over video if your competitor is showing up in person and so so there are certain kinds of things that I don't know that I've seen people solve yet um but you know may, maybe like the people get used to like living in that way and communicating in that way. And that works. I mean, I, I definitely am open-minded about it just because yeah. it's been so shocking what's happened so far. 
Well, it, it may also just, you know, it may just be different kinds of companies, right? And different kinds of employees yeah. that kind of sort, you know, kind of sort along this axis. I think that's right. And then look, there are, you know, we, we did, I just talked to a crypto company. Um, I won't name the name, but, uh, you know, very smart founders. Um, and, you know, they're building, you know, one of the hottest projects and it's a developer platform. Um, and they can't wait to get back in the office because they just like being in the office with each other so much. Yeah, in fact, there are other companies, of course, yeah. that we know that, that literally have, you know, have, have they literally now have homes or compounds, yeah. um, you know, and often in very creative places, yeah. um, uh, which actually turns out to be good for the burn rate, uh, among <laughs> other things. Yeah, yeah uh, that, that, for sure. Um, so let's go to a third question, which is actually a management question that kind of follows from uh, Susan Groff, which is, uh, in the hard thing about hard things, you warn against the management standard. Um, don't bring me problems without bringing me a solution. And I think she means by that that you disagree with that statement. Is that right? Or, or um, you, yeah. You well, I think it's a dangerous cultural idea. So I think that as an, you know, this is, and you're really good on this topic, which is how the system should behave and how you should behave as an individual are not the same thing. Um, and, you know, for the system, i.e. the communication system of a, of a company, if people have it in their head that don't bring me a problem if, they, if I don't have a solution and I don't know the solution, or if it's just like too hairy and complex a problem for me to like know how to solve, right? Like if I'm an engineer, like do I really know how to do the CEO job better than you and I can tell you how to solve this effed up problem that I'm dealing with, mm-hmm. um, then you you lose the information, uh, which is extremely dangerous because you have to know what's wrong with your company if you're going to fix it um, like that. <laughs> the first step in fixing a problem is knowing you have a problem. And so uh, I think it is a, like a, a really dangerous idea. Now, individually in a career, I think that, you know, as you're um, kind of be trying to be a good employee, it's good to try and think of a solution for the problems you come up with for sure. So uh, I, I think that part of it is fine. Um, but, you know, I think the challenge for CEOs is how do you get bad news to get to you? Um, because people are afraid to you know, tell the CEO the bad news. And one of my favorite uh, parts of the movie, The Wiz, is when uh, Eveline did that number, ain't nobody better, better bring me no bad news. <laughs> because it's like, you know, because I'm going to be pissed that I want to deal with that, that bullshit. And like a lot of CEOs do give off that vibe. And I think that that, you know, companies always degenerate that have that culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you think about, well, how do you encourage it? You have to normalize it. You have to make it so that, Hey, we love problems. We love to hear about the broken shit in the company. You know, it makes us feel good. And you know, one of the things that I did used to do is in order to come to my staff meeting, and staff meeting was always kind of, you know, when you're a CEO, people want to be in that meeting because it's kind of the innermost circle. It said, look, you're not allowed in the staff meeting unless you tell me something broken in the organization. Because I know that we have a lot of things broken because we're big enough. And if you don't know one, then you're not doing your job and I don't have any use for you in my meeting. And so that would kind of normalize. Everybody goes, okay, not only are we allowed to talk about it, but we're being forced to talk about all the things wrong with the company. And then that just kind of made it normal. And then once it's normal, it's just easy to deal with it because it takes the emotion out of it. You know, whereas if somebody once a year comes to you and says, hey, your culture is all messed up and it's broken and like we don't have a strategy or all the you know, things people say when it gets out of hand, Um, then it makes you feel like, okay, that's abstract. It's weird. I don't even know what the fuck to do with it. Are you criticizing me? Like you get all that. And then it just makes it worse. 
Whereas if you know every little thing that's wrong, it never gets to that point and you can solve things and it's just kind of normal way of living. Yeah, and so Susan asked, added, added the, uh, the question, um, how do you build a culture where critical information flows, especially now uh, when everybody's remote? Because presumably, right, the mechanisms that you had in the past you know, may, may, may probably are not working in this environment. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, that's a really great question. And I think it's... Um, it's a little hard to answer because, uh, you know, we're in the middle of it. I think yep. that, um, you know, we, I, I can say this, you know, at, at our firm, you know, and as you know, Mark, like we're redesigning all the meetings. <laughs> um, we're trying to make better and better use of the tools. Uh, and then I think that as a, um, as a leader, you just have to, you don't bump into people in the hall. So if you don't call them individually and you're doing actually a good job of this too, which is like, you know, also helps me is just like call people up and, and talk to them because in lieu of bumping into them, um, because yep. you're not going to bump into them. And so you're missing a whole lot of communication and particularly, you know, where you kind of get like people like to people in a meeting don't want to say, Hey, this is all screwed up, but, like if you bump into the hallway and you go, Hey, like, how's it going? Anything in your way, what's making it hard to do your job, then they'll tell you. Um, but you have to recreate that artificially, I think is probably one of the biggest challenges. Yeah. So <laughs> as an introvert, I never like bumping into people in the halls. And so that, yeah. that, technique, that technique never worked for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Seeing so, like this is better for you. This is better. So yeah. So Ben alluded to my technique. So what I'm doing now, which as, as we're quite well, so, and it's a it's a it's a two part win, which is I've been going for these really long walks, uh, either in the morning or the afternoon. You know, finding some place where I can go for you know two or three hours uh, on a walk, um, and then basically I just I I literally keep you know keep a rolling cadence of one on one phone calls, um, and try to touch everybody um, you know who's who kind of is in this category you know maybe once a month, um, and then I, I bet, and then what happens I I just pack all those calls into those walks, um, and uh, it yeah and, and it, like I think number one it's been good and then number two it's like. People do like this is a time where people really value feeling connected. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. say so far, everybody's been very excited to talk to me on my walks. Nobody has <laughs> nobody has said it's not a good use of time. Yeah, yeah. No, everybody picks up the phone right away. It's great because nobody's doing anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> exactly. So, actually, okay, on a related topic. Okay, so uh, Anissa Mirza asks, um, "Can you tell us about a time you felt most lonely and isolated as a founder, uh, and advice to fellow founders struggling with this?" Um, so let me just, I'll just start by saying like this, this is honestly something I always struggled with, um, you know, specifically yeah. when I, when I was the founder of, 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 of companies, um, it's, it's not, it's honestly, you know, it's been easier with venture firms are different. So it's, it, this has been easier, but, you know, being in the hot seat as the actual founder of a company, um, you know, it's really hard. And then there's, there's like an even more advanced version of the hard, right. Which is like, if you're, if you're doing it on your own, like if you're a solo, they call a solo founder, yeah. Yep, um, yep. Or, or if, you know, if, or, or, if, or if for whatever reason you get in a situation where you can't, you know, you can't have this kind of relationship with, with the other founder of the founders. Yeah. Um, and so I think part of it is just like, it's just really tough. Um, and yeah. this is part of the kind of, I think, thing that comes with founding a company, um, honestly, which is just, just like you, you do. And, and, and as well as you know, being a CEO, um, which is like, you really do naturally basically internalize all the issues, um, and you internalize all the problems and all the stress and you, you know, personally identify with it. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. and you get emotionally yep. wrapped up in it. Yeah, exactly. Yep. 
And then you really do have a major issue figuring out who to talk to, um, because if you talk to people in the company, you you, know, you really risk like really warping, you know, kind of uh, a lot of things w- w- which we, we could talk about. You know, if you talk to people on the outside, you know, there's there's two problems. One is, you know, they just they might not understand. Right. Which is which is a real, real challenge. And then the other is. Um, yeah. Yeah, they might be sympathetic, but they just like fundamentally like don't understand what you're going through. And then the other is, of course, like you have to be very careful who you can trust because, you know, these are all the most important things. Um, you know, and if, if if the company's high profile or has raised a lot of money or whatever, like there's real risk involved. Um, and so I guess I would say I, for one, like really struggled with this. And so I, I and I and I and I just say that even without giving an answer because I would just say like this is this is super normal. And, and and my experience is like a lot of founders at least like really never want to admit this um, yeah. because <laughs> it feels yeah. right. It feels like admitting it basically uh, signals weakness. Um, and signaling weakness as a founder is is, is extremely dangerous. And so, Ben, oh, yeah. I, I, the, the, yeah. the ultimate weakness, like yep. you know, you're terrified. You don't think you can do the job. You don't think you belong or can be CEO. Um, <laughs> you don't want to do the job. All those things. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you've also, you know, this what you described is kind of was the main reason I wrote the hard thing about hard things. I mean, that book was basically about this problem, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is. Um, you, you know, people don't, there, there's, and your the other CEOs won't tell you how like screwed up their company is, right, right. <laughs> you know, so, so you feel like you're all alone. I mean, the, the worst, the very, very worst moment that I ever had on this was, um, and I wrote about it in the book, but you know, we were on the, we were going out to do the IPO, the impossible IPO, literally called the IPO from hell by business week. Well, we were on the road. <laughs> like so yep. well we're on the road ipo from hell we have three weeks of cash um it's you know the nasdaq dropped i think uh every single day we were on the road our comparables dropped 50 percent. well you know in the three weeks we were selling the things it's just like the worst fucking time ever and you know i get a call uh you know while we're trying to get this thing done from my father-in-law who you know like and you have to know, you know, my father-in-law, he, he and I were close, but he never called me. Like he just, he wasn't a guy who called you on the phone. Like that wasn't his thing. And, you know, the other thing about him was like, he had been through everything in life. You know, his, his father was shot when he was five years old. You know, he was a black man in Texas and, you know, he and his mom, his mom couldn't do anything. So he, she had to marry this horrible guy with 12 kids and they like literally you know, had him out like uh, they they wouldn't let him eat with them. They would throw his food into the pig pen. He'd have to fight the pigs for the food when he's five, like that type of shit. So he'd been through like that. And then he had two children who had passed away and like just a really been through hard, hard things. And he called me and I could tell by his voice he was shaking. Um, and, you know, he said, look, um, Felicia can't breathe, but she's my wife, but she's going to, you know, we think she's going to be okay. We're at the hospital and I'm on the road and like, I know I need to go home. Like I, but I can't go. The company is over. If I go home, like there's no way this IPO is landing. If we go, there's, I mean, you know that Mark, nobody else knows that, but you and I know like, there's no way if I went home there, it's over. Um, and you know, trying to make that decision b- between like the company and all 500 employees going, like getting laid off and everybody losing their money and the whole thing being over. Yep. Um, 
or like not going home when like my wife's like in an emergency situation, a hospital uh, was like the worst feeling in the world. And I couldn't even, you know, it was one thing I couldn't even discuss it with you because what could you tell me other than to go home? Like there's no, it puts you in an unfair position. And um, like we ended up completing the IPO and I still feel badly about that. Uh, But it, you know, it's just, I would just say, and, and, you know, one of my wife's favorite piece that I wrote is called the struggle. Cause it, it's about that feeling that I had that day. Um, and all I can say is, you know, you just have to keep in mind that that is the path to doing something larger than yourself to doing something great is to go through that pain. Um, and there's no way to it other than through that pain. So it's part of it. Uh, but it, man, it's hard. And uh, you got to focus on what you can do, not what on you, not on what you can't do, because there's a whole lot that you can't do in that situation. Yeah, and then you, you highlighted something that I think gets missed in the public discussion a lot, um, which is you know kind of the way these companies get talked about. It's like you know the founders or CEO or whatever are kind of doing these things for themselves and for their own aggrandizement. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. there's probably some truth to that from time to time. You know, to be totally yeah. honest. Um, yeah, but you know, you alluded to something which is like it wasn't just you, and it wasn't just me, right? And just in a, in, a, in, in your situation, it was five hundred other people uh, yeah. who worked for the company. And by the way, it was even beyond that, right? Because it was also like all the customers, you know, that had like bet their careers on us. Yep, right. Like if we went away, like all of a sudden they just look like idiots, you know, for having having for having you know kind of trusted us. And so like, and, and then there's there's all the families. Um, and then of course, you know, this was in a time, you know, which, you know, hopefully won't repeat, but this is, this is in a time where like, you couldn't just go across the street and get a job, right? It was like, yeah, you could, you could not get a job. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's like nine months, a year, year and a half to get a tech job at that time. Yeah. Yep. And so like the, 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 the pressure and, you know, in, in boom times, I think you kind of forget this just cause it's like, okay, one of these companies doesn't work out. People presumably can go get other jobs, but like, number one, that's not even necessarily true in boom times. Um, because like, yeah. you know, different people have different backgrounds and skill sets and maybe it's not so easy. Um, and then the other is like, it doesn't, it's, the times aren't always like this. Um, and they won't always be like this, you know, for, for, for any of us either, you know, going forward. So, so this, this level of pressure, and, and, and of course, you know, it, it sort of combines, which is like when the market turns down, you know, it's much, much easier to get in trouble as a company, right? Uh, and, to, and to be faced with these challenges. <laughs> yep. You yeah, know, it all goes together. It's terrible. <laughs> and then, and then, well, the other thing is all the people who you're letting down are all the people who trusted you, right? Mm-hmm. Like they trusted you to, they trusted their career with us. Right. And, and now like, we're going to just break that trust massively. It's, it's a scary feeling. Yeah, so maybe we could end on maybe at one or on this question. We can end on a on a, on a practical note. So um, I, I've never been a part of it, but um, the CEOs there's this thing called the YPO, uh, which stands mm-hmm. for Young, Young Presidents Organization, that a lot of CEOs I know have been a part of, um, and it mm-hmm. basically. I think it's a good model, which they basically set up a, essentially a trust bubble. Um, and it basically, it's a sort of a very carefully calibrated yeah. organization where you become part of a group of peers. Um, yep. And then they basically sign up to like really trust each other, right? Because they got to like actually talk about like the real shit mm-hmm. um, and it can't leak. Um, yep. And so I know a lot of CEOs have been through that who like that a lot. And then, you know, the obvious, you know, kind of, you know, kind of homespun version of that is, you know, a, a, you know, kind of a group of founders basically creating the same, the same thing or, or working with, you know, their, you know, their venture firm or their, their angel investors or whatever to, to figure out a group like that. Yeah, no, I, look, I, I've heard great things too. I've never been in one. Um, I, I kind of wish I had been in one. Um, but I, I think that's a lot of it. Like just knowing that there are other people who have it worse. I mean, like one of my favorite, um, conversations I have 
with CEOs. I, I have one CEO whose business just got absolutely wrecked by the pandemic, you know, but he's still, he's still doing like an amazing job with it. But, you know, he, he, he said to me, Ben, I'm the first post-revenue company, <laughs> you know, because they're pre-revenue company. I'm the first post-revenue company. And I said, no, I was the first post-revenue company. And so it's, you know, just so like that feeling that he's like, okay, I'm talking to somebody who like screwed it up worse than I did. Um, is a is a is a nice feeling. So having having a group with people who will tell you the truth, uh, I think, would be a huge help. Yeah, another version of that would be the for profit, the, the non profit company that used to be a for profit company. Yes, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> find yourself running a charity. Um, so uh, let's see. Let's keep going. So um, actually, on the same management theme. So um, who, uh, uh, Sunil uh, Raman asks, who is the best CEO? you worked with whose companies did not succeed? (laughs) (laughs) You know, so let me say this first about that is that we've worked with a a lot of really um, outstanding CEOs whose companies didn't work and, uh, and kind of at a high level, actually one of the greatest CEOs, um, you know, that I ever met uh, was Bill Campbell and his company go failed miserably. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes the idea at the time, you know, the timing is just wrong. And no CEO, no matter what your skill set, um, can necessarily get you out of that problem. And so, I, I, you know, a failed company to me doesn't mean that the CEO is no good. That that is not how I interpret that at all. But you know, we've had we've had a lot of great ones in the portfolio. One that comes to mind that who just did an amazing job, um, but you know, like the technology just wasn't going to get there was Jason Rosenthal mm-hmm. at uh, Lytro. Yep. I thought yep. you know he he did an amazing job as a chief executive, but you know, building the team, um, executing the plan, pivoting, uh, winning the deals, everything that you would want a CEO to do, but it just didn't uh, you know work at the end of the day. Yeah, I'd highlight. I was actually going to answer answer the question in a in a in a different way, complementary way, which is, um, you know, the, the related question is like you have these things, and you you mentioned Go, Bill Campbell's company Go as an example from the early '90s. You have these companies that didn't work, which then in later years turn out to have been like an explosion of talent that yeah. like made its way. And like if you look at, so the, I'll just back up for people who haven't heard about this. So. Actually, way there's a, way before the iPhone uh, and way before the iPad, mm. um, like 20 years earlier, people had these ideas for basically handheld computers, tablet computers, computers, you mm. know, handheld computers that were phones. Like th- these ideas were old ideas. Um, and so there was an entire generation of companies in the late 80s, early 90s around what at the time, at the time, the term was pen computing. Yeah. Actually, the idea was a computer in your hand that you would, you would interface with, in a, with, a, with, a, with a pen, with a, with a stylus. Oh, but it was basically that's that idea. It's basically iPhone, iPad, 20, 20 years too early. And so there was a whole generation of startups that actually formed to actually build those things at that time. And I think they basically across the board all failed. Yeah, um, yeah. Gener- general magic. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Go. Uh, yeah, they, they every single thing. Every. Yeah. I don't, I don't think anybody succeeded. Right. Yeah. And so total wipeout. But what was what was interesting was so Bill, Bill Campbell's company with this company called Go. And ba- basically they were building iOS. Like 20, 20 years earlier, and then they were working with another company called EO that was building the chip that didn't work, which basically today is like you know the Apple, you know the, like the Apple chips. 
Um, but like go became legendary in later years. Cause like Bill went on to play these like, you know, central roles in, in the turnaround of, of Apple and in the, you know, kind of creation of Google and all these other companies. And then there were mm-hmm. all these other, and he ran yeah. into it. Yeah. Yeah. And he ran into it. And then there were all these other executives that came out of go, like if you trace the family tree, like they ended up running, like it felt like, like half of Silicon Valley. And they did a great job, well, a great, a great example of friend Stratton Sklavos, um, right? Stratton, was, Donna Dudek, Stratton Sklavos, Mike Homer, um, yeah, that whole yeah. executive staff were yeah. both great companies, yeah. So Stratton is one example, I think, was the head of sales at Go, and he was, he yeah. did, became later the CEO of Network Solutions and basically built the domain name industry that we, you know, that we, we know of today. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, that company was a talent explosion. You mentioned General Magic, um, which was another one of these talent explosions. Like it didn't work at all, but like those people are all over the valley, you know, still. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, even the pay, even, you know, the PayPal mafia, like, you know, pay, PayPal worked, um, you know, it worked, yeah. <laughs> it worked better, better than go. Um, yeah. But, you know, it didn't get that big, um, you know, before it, before it, before you bought it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And then that, and again, that, that talent explosion is like all over the valley. And so there's something special, you know, in some of these companies where they just like, it's like, there's something about the people who were selected um, you know, there's something about the nature of the mission of those companies that, you know, cause those people to want to be there. There's something about the leadership that coalesced all that. There's something about the, you know, um, you know, just like, and then there's almost something about the tragedy of it almost, which is like, you know, it, it like people who are at those companies tend to have a burning desire to prove themselves. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah no, I noticed that with the PayPal people a lot. <laughs> they are yeah, different. right. Right. The PayPal people, I don't know if they, you know, I don't know if they would say this out loud. I don't know if they admit it to themselves, but like, I think they all look back and they say, wow, you know, the, the PayPal could have been a big independent, you know, it could have been a Google, Apple, you know, Microsoft, Amazon class company, um, you know, in a, in a, it, you know, <laughs> for example, had it not been built right into the teeth of, of the uh, of the 2000 crash, you know, along, yeah. along with, uh, with our company. But yeah, it's so there's something special. And, and, and then, you know, the other thing that you kind of see when you've been in the business for, for a while is basically it's like, OK, sometimes you have your choice or maybe question Ben, this is a question for you, which is like, sometimes mm-hmm. you have your choice. You're, you're hiring for a job and you've got one person coming out of basically a failed company where it's like, okay, they had really good people there. Like I know that, but like, you know, how do I think about that on their resume? And like, it never got very far. And did, did they really see what great looked like? Mm-hmm. And did they really learn good things? And then yeah. you've got somebody else who's coming out of a company um, that basically is just like extremely established and dominant you know, and very powerful. And, and and there you've got this totally different set of questions, which is like, you know, what did they really do and how hard did they work and, and so forth. And so, but, but like a lot of people would go for the, basically the name brand in those cases. And by the way, not just because it's the name brand, because like the feeling is, okay, if, if, you know, yeah. somebody who's been at a big successful company has probably learned more about how to succeed than somebody who was at one of these, one of these companies that didn't work. Yeah. And I think that, I, I think that logic gets way overplayed and is, is a lot wrong. You know, people, really focus on uh, hiring, of course, out of companies like Google and Facebook, you know, partly because, you know, they're so powerful in their college recruiting s- scheme. So they get a lot of raw horsepower in terms of into the company. But if you <laughs> would compare that to kind of the people who came out of PayPal or General Magic, I would say you're, you get kind of more for your money out of PayPal or General Magic because you're getting someone who went through the extreme struggle of trying to find product market fit with like some of the smartest people in the world. And that, you you know, that gauntlet that they ran, you can't produce at Google. Like there's no experience at Google that matches that. Um, You know, there's no like just amount of, you particularly when you talk about leadership positions, like you can't replicate that in a company that's got a monopoly. It's just, there's no, 
there's no real inventiveness sense of urgency that 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 that, that can exist in those environments in the same way. So I do think, but but it's not you know it's not just any startup; it's the special one, um, and right. you know those are you know the ones that have the you know all those companies had an amazing VC funding, you know brought in like crazy talent and you know and still failed. Uh, so so that you know I, I would say if you get somebody out of a company like that that that's going to be the best. Also, the, the other thing is, you know, in the special case of salespeople, I think, you know, companies who try and recruit their sellers out of monopolies is just silly because that's not really selling. That's just, you know, accepting orders. <laughs> like how hard is it to sell AdWords? Like not hard. Um, whereas how hard is it to, you know, sell the second place or the third place enterprise, you know, piece of software and make your number almost impossible. So. Right. You have to take into account the degree of difficulty in the job when you look at some of these things. Yeah, you may remember remember uh, Bill Davidow, who's a Silicon Valley legend who wrote a book on high tech marketing. He said the yeah. definition of a great marketer is somebody who can sell a dog. Yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah. A, he didn't he didn't mean a canine to be clear. He meant like a product yeah. that sucks. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. Or or, or 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 not even a product that sucks, like a product that nobody wants. Yeah. Right. Yep. 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 No, it, it's funny, you know. Uh, Ali Goetz, actually, I'm doing a session with him on Clubhouse tomorrow at uh, at five. But Ali is the CEO of Databricks, and um, he hired the uh, the head of sales there, Ron um, Grabowski. He uh, he had come from a company that was literally selling um, FTP, <laughs> like FTP, right. like right. file transfer, but like a more secure version of it. Yep. And that's what he was selling. And he was able to uh, like literally get that company public yep. <laughs> selling that. Yep. And so, you know, Ali and I always talk about it. He's like, the reason he's good is he, he had to sell FTP. Yep. You know, now he's selling like the AI platform for the world. Right. <laughs> you know? yep. And so it's it's so easy for him. It's like crazy. And yeah, then well, all the guys who could sell that working for him at the last place, also incredible. Yeah, well, it's like taking it's like taking the taking the like yeah. uh, the ankle weights off of a marathon runner or something, right? Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. It's just yeah, it's just <laughs> large, large ankle weights, large ankle, large, large and very outdated ankle weights. Um, okay, good. Um, so let's uh, move on. So uh, Arjun Shah asks. Um, and Ben, this will be great for you. So what methodical ways can an unknown or under-networked founder uh, leverage uh, to gain access to startup capital? You know, I think that our friend Paul Graham had the greatest line on this that he made into t-shirts, which is, you know, make something that people want. You know, if you, the great thing about the world today is it, you know, it doesn't cost, it costs you your time to make something, but if you make it and people want it, um, Every investor will pay attention to that, uh, and you know that's the best calling card by far. Um, much better than any kind of uh, networking or, or you know, work or finagling or or anything like that. If you can, you know, manifest your idea, and it, you know, we're seeing this in music too, by the way, um, where it used to be, you know, you'd have to like know somebody and get to Hollywood or get to New York and all this stuff, and now you've got guys like NLE Chopper you know, 16 years old in Memphis and makes a song and puts it out. And all of a sudden he's got an $8 million contract. And I think that's very true 
in venture capital right now, which in, you know, look in the old days, you, it would take a lot of money just to get a company started. And that's not the case anymore. You need a laptop. Um, and so that's, you know, if you really have the gift and, um, you know, have the inspiration and the genius, um, then, you know, make something that people want and you will get the money. So let me ask the let me ask the the tougher version of the question then building on that, mm-hmm. um, which is like okay that that sounds good but like you know basically you know everybody knows um, uh, by the way you know correctly or not but everybody knows that like venture capital is venture capital very common for venture capital firms to only take warm introductions um, right in, in, which means introductions introductions brokered by somebody they already know um, and that you know a lot of investors won't look at things that you know quote unquote come over the transom which is to say kind of just you know show up or get sent in. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if I'm somebody, um, and by the way, this was me once upon a time growing up in the Clark yeah. fields in Wisconsin. Um, yeah. but you so, knew Jim, somehow you met Jim Clark. Well, that was Jim, 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 Jim decoded that one. Like had I not had I met Jim, I would have had this very direct, direct issue. Um, but, but, the, you know, the, the, the serious form of the question, right. is like, okay, like, you know, look, these, these VCs and these angel investors and everybody, like they're all running around doing deals today. They're all running around doing deals with people, you know, kind of through these networks that they've built you know, over the years, like, you know, look, maybe they didn't all start with like a silver you know, spoon in their mouth. They're kind of built into the Silicon Valley network, but like yeah. somehow they got there and now they all talk to each other and they talk to kind of people who are like them. Um, yeah. And, um, and, you know, they're, they're so busy taking referrals from the people that they know and have worked with in the past. And they, you know, they don't really want these mm-hmm. kind of cold, these, these cold leads. And so basically like, how do you punch into this network? Like, you know, and I guess I'd say is if, if you don't have the thing somebody wants, or even if you do have the thing, you know, you build the thing that people want, like, how, how do you, like, what's the best way to punch in that network if you're not already in it? Yeah, so, so I, I would say, you know, kind of first off, um, you did make something that, that somebody wanted, which was the browser, which is how Jim Clark found you, right? Yeah, um, that's true. And Jim Clark wasn't a VC or anything. He was a guy who had built a company. And I think that, you know, particularly when you make technology products that people want, technology people find out about it, and then they're it's a very short path to get to somebody like us. If you know anybody in technology who likes your product. Um, I mean, we, that is a pretty fast connection. Like it's, it's not, it's not closed end in the least. Like, it's not like uh, I would say um, things I've heard about trying to crack into Hollywood, which is like a much more closed and difficult and challenging system in that way. Um, And then I would say, you, you know, there's so many ways to meet tech people now, um, you know, with social media, with Clubhouse and so forth. I mean, my wife runs a show that, you know, is like, you know, people inside and outside of tech. And and then we do a lot of work to try and expand our network to get to more and more people. But, um, you know, you just, you, you got to meet people. Um, they have to get to know you. Um you know, if you're smart, they always want to introduce you to their other smart friends um, and, you know, builds on that and so forth. But like, I think the main thing is to engage it and not get discouraged and not feel like you don't belong. Um, I think that the thing is m- most people get self-defeated on this as opposed to, I mean, I also came from the outside, right? Like, I, you know, no, nobody in my family ever worked in a company or started a company or knew anything about companies. You know, we were all politics and then my mom was a nurse. and you know, so I, you know, like, how do you get in? Um, and you, you just keep like trying to meet people and you're like, you have to have the talent. Um, it's a very competitive field and all that kind of thing. But if you have the talent and you work, 
what I think we see is like most of the people in Silicon Valley, interestingly, are outsiders. Like when you think about the people we fund um, and you go back through their history, like they didn't, you know, they, they came from other countries. Yeah. Like, let alone, like they're not, most of them are not from the U.S. Yeah, including some pretty exotic <laughs> places like Communist Romania. Yeah, Communist Romania. We've got people from uh, Jordan in the portfolio. Right. We've got people from right. Egypt, uh, you know, just all over the place. Um, you know, quite a few people from Israel. Uh, right. And, you know, like a lot of most of them, English is a second language. You know, we just had uh, Vlad on the other day on, on two of the clubhouse things. Like, you know, he's, he's not from here. <laughs> um, and it's... Uh, you know, it's it's an amazing place in that way. Yeah, I'd give maybe two tactical or two kind of practical things that people could think about. So one is, you know, one one of the just amazing opportunities that exist today is that these these big companies, these big tech companies, are now so big, um, and they're hiring so many people, um, and they're hiring so many people in lots of different places. Um, and so, the, just the most obvious thing I would say, in addition to what Ben said, is like, look, like go, go to work for one of the giants. Yep. Um, you know, and, yep. and preferably you know, one, one of the giants is still on their, on their way up. Right. So, you know, a company with like, you know, con- continuing momentum. Um, and like, even, even if that involves, like, this would be my cheat code. Like if I, if I just like showed up here and I didn't have any connections, that's what I I'd just like get into any of these companies, um, and then work your way up. Um, once you're inside and you'll just like naturally build a network, like if, if you yep. work at it and then, the, the, and then the people at those companies at the big tech companies, the, a lot of the, you know, engineers and the managers and the VPs and so forth that those companies are like highly connected into the startup world. You know, many of them come from the startup world. And so that's, that's like one cheat code. I just bring it up because I think there's a specific version of this problem, which is somebody who's in like, you know, another city or whatever, and working at a, you know, maybe a, not even in tech or in a mid-sized tech company mm-hmm. that maybe Valley people haven't heard of. And they're, they're wondering how to kind of get plugged in. And it, it may be, there's like one more step in the career path. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good idea. And, you know, companies are networks. Um, right. So like everybody, every employee there is in the network and uh, and everybody quickly finds out who's good. And so, you know, you go to a company like that and you're good and it will get recognized yep. um, really fast, by the way. And then the other is there's a book that I read years ago that I can't believe I read and I have no idea why I read it, but I, it's always stuck with me. Ben, you'll find this very funny. Um, the book is, the book is called Never Eat Alone. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I know that book. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, and it's the, the ultimate networking book. Yeah. It's the ultimate networking book. Um, and um, what he basically says, this is years ago, but the way I remember it, what he basically says, um, is look, flip the problem. Um, instead of being the person who's trying to figure out how to get in the network, basically be the person that helps everybody else get into networks. Um, and, and basically what he says is, look, and he, he structures them basically as, as dinners. And, and so he has this, basically this whole template laid out for basically how, how to start holding dinners. Um, and then basically how to invite like cross sections of people, uh, in those dinners, um, so they can get to know each other. Um, and then of course, you know, the next step beyond that is you become known as the people who, the person who brings people together. And then before you know it, like you're starting to like broker people for like jobs, um, yep. By the way, you're starting to introduce people who end up, you know, in romantic relationships. Um, <laughs> and by the way, just that skill, if yep. you're elite at that, you don't need any other skills. Like right. that's good enough to make your career. Right, exactly. And so, and, and what he points out is people don't have to wait. This is the thing that stuck with me in the book. You don't have to wait until you're successful to do this, right? Um, yeah. Because yeah. there are always lots of young people running around who have this yeah. exact same problem. Um, and so you basically start by gathering all the people like you. 
right? Um, you know, especially like, you know, early you know, people who are earlier in their careers. And then basically as people's careers develop, you get into this feedback loop, right? Where, you know, sort of members of your network, people participating, right? Um, uh, you know, they, they start gaining power and influence and they start knowing people. And then you're able to, you know, through them pulling other people. Um, and, and then it's, it's also this kind of thing, you know, try to do with the firm, which is it's sort of a pay it forward, you know, kind of thing, um, which is, you know, instead of, instead of starting by asking people for things like introductions to people, you know, start, start by giving them. Um, and then you, you end up building basically so much gratitude uh, through that that the, the rest of us are see really easy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It, like it takes a lot of social courage to do that, but it, like if you've got that, um, the, yeah, that that definitely works. Yeah, and That's he says like he says, by the way. yeah, yeah, he says people overthink it. It's like it doesn't need to be like a fancy steak restaurant or like a fancy whatever this that. It's like you know like you know a bunch of a bunch of you know card tables and a you know and, and pizzas, you know, is a good way to get started. <laughs> and so it's a yeah, it's actually a, a, a low uh, a low cost way to go. Um, ben, we're yes. about at eight. Are you good to go a little bit longer? Sure. Okay, let's keep going. All right, we're going to shift to a few industry topics that are very hot right now. So uh, Jitan Thakar asks, when and what do you think would be the inflection point after which the decentralized web would gain traction as a potential competitor to traditional centralized internet and cloud? And Ben, I'm going to ask you to start. Yeah, so I think there are... Um... <sighs> I wouldn't characterize it as one inflection point. So I, I, I think that um, what we're seeing already is kind of multiple inflection points. So we kind of, you know, the first one was kind of Bitcoin, like really holding value and, and uh, you know, people going, wow, this really is going to be worth something, um, which is amazing because it's just a piece of software, right? Uh, and, you know, just like the fact that that happened is such an incredible breakthrough. And then, you know, there was a quick, uh, inflection point that went away or <laughs> two quick ones on ethereum one was um crypto kitties and then the other was uh um, icos uh, and you know for regulatory reasons and performance reasons those didn't quite take but they certainly built awareness and created a lot of developer activity um and then that's led to DeFi, which is another i think you know really important inflection point uh, and then also NFTs or uh, non-fungible tokens. Um, and we're seeing just some major, amazing activity uh, in that space, both in, you know, in the art world and then also with Dapper Labs and collectibles uh, like NBA Top Shot and so forth. So like every time there's a new, really interesting application of the technology, you know, things start to inflect. Um, there's a huge amount of energy now uh, to kind of build decentralized social, you know, just due to the, you know, deplatforming and so forth. And, you know, many of the building blocks are there, um, you know, with storage systems and then, you know, the ability to do naming, you know, then there's various naming things. And then also like what Ethereum, you know, can provide there and, and whatnot. So, you know, there's a need for that. Nobody's built one that's uh, performant and as usable as the current social networks, but, you know, as that comes, it's very likely to move things forward. But, you know, or when you think about kind of how tech, one technology really challenges another, um, it does happen in waves. So if you think about SaaS, you know, first it was just little companies who would buy it, then the features got more robust and bigger companies, and then security got better and even bigger companies. And now the pandemic has hit, and, you know, hopefully everybody will go to it. But uh, you know, it's going to be a lot like that. I don't think it's going to be like one application in one point in time. 
Yeah, so I make a couple observations. So there's a few aspects of this that I can't talk about because of professional affiliations. But um, yeah, I make a couple observations. So one is like this question now exists at every layer of the stack, um, and that's new. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think honestly, I think the world I think the world changed when Parler was 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 killed um, because Parler mm-hmm. Parler Parler was killed. I mean, by the way, <laughs> Parler of all things built on WordPress, like <laughs> maybe the worst technology effort of our lifetime. And yet, and yet, um, and so like the thing that was so striking is like Parler was taken out at like every layer of the stack in the same day. Right. Um, like they, they said, like they said literally like every service provider they had dumped them on the same day. And like, you know, look, maybe that doesn't happen to like a lot of things. Maybe that, you know, we'll, we'll see what that trend is, but like a lot of the really sharp engineers and entrepreneurs that I'm, you know, talking to that we're talking to on this stuff are, you know, basically since that moment are now thinking, and I would say a much broader way about this question. Um, which is like, okay, like there may be issues now at every layer of the stack, right? And 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 by the way, those, you know, mm-hmm. obviously those issues now exist at the level of the app store. Those issues exist at the level of, you know, DNS, those levels yep. exist <laughs> payments. Um uh they um can I mention can I uh, I don't know if I, I if if I ask you if I can mention it, I will have already mentioned it, but um can I can I mention the personal connection you have to deplatforming in the in the payment space? <laughs> 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 you know that's a very dangerous association for me because it keeps getting banned. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and mention that's it because it's just too yeah. good, it, it's too good not to. And plus, I know he yeah. he, he like he, he would enjoy the publicity. Um, yes, he uh, would. And, and by the way, like you know, he's he's yeah, I would justifiably I think fairly upset. Uh, I think about what happened, but like yeah, Ben's father actually got banned at one point from the payment networks and from the banking system. Um, and so for for those of you who think that sanctions are something that we only apply to Iran and, and North Korea. Uh, that's no longer the case. Yes, yes. <laughs> people can people can Google this if they want. I won't. I won't, for, I won't force Ben to go into it. But yeah. um, at the payments <laughs> level, and I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, and then um, you know, also like you know, at the CDN level, um, you know, and then the CDN level is like you know only one step above the ISP level. Um, and then um, you know, the App Store is like adjacent to the browser. Right. And so, you know, if the, you know, if the companies that make phones are, are, are willing to ban at the app store, you know, you know, potentially the browser at some point becomes identified as a loophole, um, you know, the email client. Um, and so like this, this thing, you know, what, 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 and again, for good, bad, indifferent, however you look at it, like this thing that happened um, seems to have really, um, let's just say energized. Uh, some of the smartest people we know into thinking, I would say much more broadly about this. Now, you know, th- this is like a big challenge. And so if you literally said, look, the challenge here is to build like a parallel internet, right? Or a parallel like tech stack, like that's really hard. Um, on the other hand, like, you know, maybe, maybe that opportunity is getting larger. We'll see. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, people say about, about, um, about, I was arguing with a friend of mine, economist, uh, friend of mine the other day, and he's like, look, like this censorship thing, like, yeah, everybody's all in a tizzy, but like not that many people are getting censored. It's not that big of a deal. And are people just going to stay you know, where they are? And it's like, well, there is another reason for decentralization, right? Um, and, and, and that reason, at least historically, and that reason is what, what what's called permissionless innovation, right? So, so, so censorship is like censorship is like sort of the it's the thing that you saw that now goes away, right? And then permissionless innovation is the thing that doesn't exist yet, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this is this is really what the web the web had going for it like early on, and what actually TCPIP had going for it early on, and actually even what like Twitter had going uh, for it early on, which basically is you could build whatever you want, 
and you could build whatever you want without asking anybody for any permission. Like to, to, just to give an example, to build the browser, to build Mosaic, I never had to ask anybody's permission. I didn't have to go to the phone company and ask permission. I didn't have to go to you know the, the tech companies and ask for permission. Like I could just build the code, deploy it, and it just worked. And so these distributed systems, right, have this, generally they have this characteristic that you can build whatever you want on top of them, which, which sort of falls out naturally from the fact that they're distributed, which is to say there's no central, you know, kind of no central choke point. And so the other way to think about this that I think about a lot is like, okay, when you have a centralized system of any kind where there is this choke point, probably they're not just censoring things that already exist. Probably they're preventing things from being built that don't exist yet. Right. And, and these, by definition, are things that you can't see. Right. So my, my friend I was debating this with, he's like, OK, well, give me like six examples of the, the things that don't exist yet. And I'm like, well, like I could I can make up examples right? I can hypothesize examples, but we won't know for sure until it's possible to build, because at that point, what you'll find is like a thousand really smart, creative people will come up with ideas that, you know, you and I would have never thought of. Um, and so that's the other form of energy. Um, that can be potentially unleashed here. Um, and I'm, I'm really curious to see, you know, kind of how many layers of the stack this happens in, because I, I think it might be a more dramatic change than, than people think. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, I think the internet, like if you look at the number of brand new things that nobody had thought of that were built on the internet because there was permissionless innovation, um, I would expect the same thing to happen here. And already kind of we're seeing that like nobody built, uh, you know, digital trading cards on the centralized system. And right. because one, they didn't have permission. And then the other was they weren't going to make any money. Um, so the other thing, like the centralized thing doesn't not only ban you and not give you permission, but also taxes the hell out of you, even mm -hmm. if you do it, um, as we're seeing with, you know, Apple charging 30%, you know, you build an app on that, like you pay them 30%, you build an app on the internet, you don't pay anybody anything. Um, and you build an app on the decentralized <laughs> web and the decentralized system and you're not going to pay anybody anything and i think that really changes the velocity of innovation by you know it's not by like twice as fast it's like ten thousand times as fast when you do that yep yeah that's right uh bill joy uh, had something on this he said years ago um uh, bill joy was the founder one of the founders of sun microsystems which actually itself was one of these platforms that people built a lot of things on um and he said, he said joy, joy's law um, he said, no matter how, no matter how great your company is, um, most of the smart people in the world don't work there. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. And, that, and I think that's the biggest argument for decentralization right there. Right. Exactly. Uh, okay, good. And then look, a related question, um, uh, which, uh, from Ryan Gentry is, um, has crypto had its Netscape moment yet? Um, why or why not? And let me actually explain. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question for you, I guess. I, I was at Netscape. You, you founded Netscape. <laughs> you were there. You were dealing with the consequences of everything that I said in public. Yes. Um, so uh, let me expand the question, actually. Let me actually differentiate or propose a framework, Ben, for, to, to talk about this, which is, let, let's get, say there are Netscape moments and then there are iPhone moments. Um, and I think mm -hmm. they might actually be different. Yeah. Um, so the Netscape moment, I think, is what we were just talking about, which basically is the moment of like people going, aha, now that yep. this thing exists, I can build X, Y, and Z on top of it, mm -hmm. um, which um, is based. And, and I say that because, like Ben will certainly remember, like you know, when early on in Netscape, it was not actually clear what the Internet killer apps were going to be, right? Like you know, that, this that's is, a question we got every day, right? Like right, every day, right. we're like, what's a killer app? What's a killer app? What's a killer app? <laughs> and it's like, fuck, we're the killer app. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
And then, you know, look, people, you know, smart people, you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, famously got in his car and drove to Seattle and with his wife and, you know, started Amazon. But like that was, you know, that wasn't part of our plan. Um, And so, you know, nor was eBay, nor was, you know, Yahoo or any of these other things. So, um, yeah, so the the Netscape moment is kind of like, okay, it's it's the moment of the arrival of permissionless innovation um, in which people can build whatever they want. And then let's say the iPhone moment is like the moment of like broad based sort of fundamental high engagement consumer acceptance. Like yep. where basically a large number of people in their personal lives just go, okay, like that's the thing. And I have to have one of those and I'm going to use it all the time. And yeah. so Ben, where do you think, where do you think crypto is on, on both of those uh, uh, fronts right now? So I feel like we're past the Netscape moment. And and the reason I say this is so, and you remember, nobody remembers this, but me and you, Mark, but in early 1995, IBM bought Lotus. Yep. And when they bought Lotus for $3 billion, um, had they instead bought every single internet company, including Netscape, Amazon, and eBay, and Yahoo, yep. uh, they would have paid, they could have bought all those companies for less than they paid for Lotus. Like, So that's where it was after the Netscape moment, because yep. that was 95, which is a Netscape moment year. Um, and, you know, crypto, like Bitcoin's worth nearly $700 billion right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> so like, I feel like in crypto, we're past that, and people have gone a high, and the, the developer energy is amazing against it right now. And the, you know, we just see a higher and higher caliber of developers coming in every single day on the crypto team. It's it's like head spinning, what's going on. So I really feel like we're there. Um, I don't think, um, and you know, you're kind of a, I would say more of a master of of consumer behavior and adoption, but I don't think. We're yet at the iPhone moment um, when kind of everybody is like, okay, I have to have that. Uh, I still think it's a little, the, the world of crypto is a bit confusing to people, but I feel like it started with, you know, between NFTs, the rise of Bitcoin, and what's going on in distributed finance, I feel like we're getting close. Why don't you describe, actually, it's super hot all of a sudden, uh, this idea mm-hmm. of NFTs. And it, as you said, this looks like this may be like one of the things that really tips this. Maybe yeah. describe for people who haven't heard of, of NFTs what they are. Yeah, so, it's, you know, it's a way to own something that's a digital good, So, um, which is kind of an amazing and weird concept. And it started, you know, kind of the first really popular one was this thing, CryptoKitties, <laughs> where, you know, you could uh, get these different cats and they would have properties and they could do cool things like breed with other cats and then you would get more crypto kitties. But they, the thing that makes them different than just a picture of a cat on the internet is from a kind of cryptographically strong standpoint, I own it and I have one of one, just like I have one of one Bitcoin or like, uh, you know, one of one ETH. So it's mine. And I now own this good and it's a virtual good, but of course, baseball cards are a virtual good. Like Honus Wagner card is worth millions of dollars, but the cardboard that it's printed on and the stale bubble gum that it came with is worth nothing. Right, <laughs> um, right. And, you know, that's the same for, you know, I don't know what the canvas and the paint that Bosquet used cost, but it was nothing yep. <laughs> compared to the value of his painting. And yep. so now you can do that digitally but then you add on all these amazing digital properties. So uh, at NBA Top Shot Dapper Labs, there was a uh, LeBron James um, dunk, <laughs> uh, which is a video um, 
you know, that you can own that uh, and have the one of one card that you can then trade with your friends and all these kinds of things. And that, you know, went for $76,000. And a lot of it, you know, it's a better card than you can do on cardboard because you have the full power of computers and so forth. Uh, and they can have different properties and so on. And, you know, the art can have different properties. Uh, so it's a, it's really like a super exciting field. And, you know, it's so exciting for visual artists right now because all, all of a sudden there's a whole new way to kind of share your creativity with the world and make money and, and all these things and you, and a whole different kind of collector and, and whatnot. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really taking off. Yeah, I've been arguing, you know, people kind of, people, some people, you know, argue, argue very vehemently that this thing yeah. shouldn't, you know, these kinds of things either shouldn't, shouldn't work or won't work. And I'm like, well, you know, you made the point on the, like the paintings. I would also say even like sneakers, sneakers right, are virtual right. goods, right? Like <laughs> yep. sneaker, $200 pair of sneakers is like $5 of plastic, right? $5 of plastic. And then I don't know if they pay the Uyghurs at all, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. That was a, that was an off-color joke. <laughs> Please don't assassinate me, Chinese government. <laughs> exactly. Don't worry. They're not listening. They, they banned Clubhouse yeah. today. Oh, that's right. That's right. We're, we're off the hook. Um, so, um, uh, yeah. And so like, you know, $195 of your $200 sneakers or whatever, you know, which a lot of people collect and, and, you know, a lot of people collect sneakers, don't even wear them. Um, you know, which is <laughs> yep. like, I can tell you nobody did that when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> yeah, not in Wisconsin, at least. Not in Wisconsin. And so, so like, it's already $195 virtual good that happens to have $5 of plastic attached. Um, yeah. And so I would say, and, and I would also say, look, like, you know, and again, like a lot of people are cynical about this kind of thing, but it's like, look, like a big part of the entire point of life, right, is, 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 is aesthetics, right? Like, Oh, yeah. The design of the thing, you know, the way that we live and the design of things around us and like artistic creativity, right? And like yeah. all that stuff is virtual. Like by definition, it's all virtual. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a feeling. You, right. you know, you're buying a feeling uh, and right. and what's that worth? You know, right. potentially a tremendous amount of money. Yep, exactly. And so, yeah, this, this, is, the, this is the kind of thing that you know, gives at least Ben and I a lot of confidence in kind of the consumerization uh, crypto yeah. actually tip, tipping actually i think like basically right now um <laughs> yeah certainly feels that way yep okay good all right uh three more and see three more and then we'll try to see if we can wrap by 8 30 or so so um two uh related questions so uh joe uh, uh phileo says what are the great problems that today's entrepreneurs must solve um and anisa mirza says what are the most important startups not being built <laughs> Yeah, those are such great questions, and I almost feel too small to answer them. But uh, look, I think you know one of the ones that we just discussed is so important, which is um, you know decentralizing everything. Uh, and I think it's 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 critically important for for many reasons. Well, here, here's here's you know one of the biggest you know decentralizing many of our kind of public and government institutions, meaning, uh, you know, our government is very centralized. And as a result, like all kind of centralized things, it's subject to kind of uh, slowness, rot, incompetence, corruption, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying do away with government, but I'm saying, uh, you know, put the more power in the hands of the people to organize themselves and to make a, contribu a contribution to society um, permissionlessly, because uh, right now, and one of the, the you know one of the most exciting things that we see on these platforms is you know the ability to kind of self-organize and you know self-organize, agree, 
make contracts with each other um, and do things, you know, from, okay, our neighborhood needs a bridge or needs, uh, you know, security or, you know, needs a better park or all these kinds of things. We can't do this without going through, you know, getting permission from the government today. Um, but like, we absolutely can do them. We just need a different way to organize ourselves and get to a kind of a permissionless society. And I think that's, you know, it, it's a step that we need to get to. And, and one of the most important things that I think we need to build, um, you know, look, there, there's a lot of things that have to happen technologically, but when we think about the scale of society, um, you know, we're just running into a lot of issues um, with how big we are, you know, and it's not, a, I'm not saying that it's bad guys and all politicians are bad and Congress is a bunch of assholes or anything like that. I'm just saying like, we're really big. And <laughs> just like when companies get really big, like when the country gets really big and old, um, the old systems, the old processes, the old rules uh, work much less well than when you set them up. Um, and so having a way that everybody can contribute uh, to working together would be, yeah, I probably the most important thing for for our country and for mankind. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously a very broad problem statement. And so there's potentially entire industries. I mean, beyond just like many different products, there's probably many different <laughs> industries. I mean, what, what you just said. Sorry, humankind. I, I would correct okay. myself. I don't. Okay. Yes. I use the old language, which is definitely outdated. And you know, potentially, potentially animal kind. We'll, we'll see. We'll yes. see what we can do. We'll see. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the lens I would put on this is um, basically uh, I'll apply a little bit more of sort of an academic or abstract kind of framing. But um, if you you can actually go online, you can actually there's a unit of the U.S. government called the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and they kind of track the economy um, really closely and really, really well. Um, probably the best sort of analysis like it on, on the planet. And, um, you know, they, they will basically give you on their website. They'll just show you basically the, the breakdown, of basically the entire economy right into, into slices. Um, and what you notice if you look at that, like if you do a pie chart of like U.S., uh, what they call gross domestic products, so like the total output of the U.S. economy, it's really striking what you see because you see these basically these small slices of the pie where tech is like super active and super relevant, right? And so media and entertainment, right, or like, you know, video, you know, video games, obviously, or like, you know, retail, Right. Um, or, you know, electronics or, um, you know, there's just like, you know, if you just kind of go down the list of the things that Silicon Valley does, like, you know, we, we, we tend to do really well in kind of those 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 smaller slices of the economy. And then there are these other things that are these just giant slices of the pie. Right. Um, and, you know, the big obvious one is like healthcare. Uh, healthcare is one sixth of the American economy and growing. Right. And so on its current course of speed, it's going to go from one sixth to one fifth to one fourth to one third to one half. Of the economy, of course, it has the characteristic that it, you know many things are causing it to get that large, including the fact that nobody wants to pay for it. Um, but um, you know that's really big. And then there's another you know really big slice for education. Um, there's another you know really big slice for housing. Um, there's another big slice to Ben's point, just simply for government, like for like basically just like the operations of the country. Um, there's actually another big slice for you know basically law, kind of in there. Um, and these are these are things in which tech is either you know either somewhat present but hasn't had a huge effect or it's just basically like not present right and so you just kind of say like historically give an example historically uh, you know pri private homes like private home construction is this just gigantic industry uh, in the U.S. it's really central to people's lives it's really central to you know what's called the American dream the idea of like being able to own your own house be able to raise your family there um, and like you know Silicon Valley historically has had almost nothing to do with this. 
Um, transportation, by the way, is another big one. Um, Silicon Valley, you know, 10 years ago had almost nothing to do with transportation. Um, you know, we've really worked our way in there now, you know, sort of between like what Elon's done with, with Tesla and then with self-driving cars and with, uh, you know, uh, transportation as a service, you know, like companies like Lyft. Um, and so, you know, that, that's an example where we're actually making progress, but that's, that's one that's really striking because as of 10 years ago, we, we, we really hadn't. Um, and so I think, you know, part of the process, but a big part of the opportunity for the, for the industry for the next, you know, 20 or 30 years is to go basically take on those challenges. Um, they are more complicated, right? They're very large. And so when things work in those markets, they can get very big. Um, but they are very complicated. There's, there's a reason why we're not as far along in those sectors. Um, and it's because those sectors, they're typically more complex. They, they, there are more economic issues, right, in terms of how various things are paid for, uh, you know, like with healthcare. Um, there's also generally a lot more government involvement in those markets, right, a lot more regulation. Um, and so they, they are harder. But it, it is pretty clear to me that, like, a lot of the future of this industry ought to be in those markets. And Ben, uh, see what you think of that. I totally agree. I mean, I think that's a great way to look at it. It's like, what are the things that we need to build everywhere where prices are going up? Right. Um, you know, and that because that's going to have the biggest impact because that's clearly where, where we have an applied technology and things have gotten older and bigger. Um, and when things get older and bigger and you don't apply technology, they generally get much worse. Yeah. And, and much and would, it's clearly much more expensive. No question. Yep. And I would also say, like, and we might spend some more time on this in another program, but I would also say, like, this issue is actually central to what's happening in our politics. And I and, I, and that's not a statement of left or right. It's just a, it's actually a statement of the animation, both on the left and on the right, which is basically the extent to which it feels to a lot of people in the country, like their ability to live a better life than their parents did and their ability to raise a family and their ability to own a home and their ability to have like high quality health care and high quality education. Like, you know, these are like fundamental markers of like basically satisfaction in life, right, for, for people and for their families at, at like a very deep level. Um, and so, you know, those sectors, right, housing prices just keep rising, education prices just keep rising, healthcare prices just keep rising, to Ben's point. Like, those sectors generally are on a one-way track of rising prices. And I, and, I, and I think a lot of the political anxiety, both on the left and the right, is, is, is oriented fundamentally to this. And, and, and to, to, to think about that, just like close your eyes and imagine that all of a sudden those three things all of a sudden started to fall in price. Right. And and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, like I can get a really good house and like it costs like 20 percent less than it did five years ago. And it's going to cost like 20 percent less five years from now. Right. And like it's these, these this is going to be something that's like affordable for me. Right. And it's, you know, same thing for like a high quality education, same thing for high quality healthcare. Um, And so, you know, it's like today, you know, today, if you just track prices, you know, uh, you know, a you know, a hundred inch, you know, uh, TV that like covers your entire wall you know, is on its way to being costing a hundred dollars. Right. Um, and then a four year college degree is on its way to costing a million dollars. Right. And it, and it, and it, and it like literally a million dollars and it, and it kind of feels, <laughs> I won't of, say which I'd rather have. Well, it kind of feels like it should be the, yes, that is, that is one question. And of course, right now with COVID, they are kind of the same thing, but, um, you know, it, it, it kind of feels like that should probably flip, right? Like it, it, it kind of feels like that, 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 that those are probably uh, not the directions you want to go from a societal standpoint. So, uh, we in the tech industry have work to do. Um, okay, uh, closing question, uh, final question. Um, what unwritten rule about, oh, sorry, uh, Nora Siddiqui asks, what unwritten rule about the world did you discover and how did you discover it? So, and, and this is one uh, that uh, people by default hire themselves. 
um, and they, they, they basically profile themselves and they understand themselves. And so to be good at all, or even competent at doing anything with a diverse group, you have to learn to both understand talent that you don't have and um, see talent that you don't have and value talent that you don't have. And that is a skill that I, I would say most managers never develop and it takes a lot of development to do. And uh, I discovered it, look, just by working in organizations and you notice, oh, <laughs> you know, there's a woman manager. She seems to have a lot of women working for her. Oh, there's an Asian manager. He seems to have a lot of Asians working for him. Oh, there's a white manager. He has a lot of white managers working for him. And it's, um, but then if you get deeper into it, they tend to have the exact backgrounds and the exact skill sets of the hiring person, which is natural. You know, I, I know what I'm good at. I can test for it in an interview. I value it highly. Um, but if you want kind of a team that can do more than what you just you yourself can do, then you have to be able to recognize things that you can't do. And that is, I, I would just say something that um, almost nobody can do naturally. Uh, it's something that takes work and effort, and most people don't know that they need to learn it and put in the effort. Um, they think they just need to be not sexist or not racist, uh, which doesn't work, by the way. Uh, you actually have to really learn it and understand it. And the, the analogy I like to use for this is a football team. You know, if uh, like if you were a wide receiver and you just can't evaluate people who weigh 300 pounds and you put everybody on the team, runs really fast and is really skinny. Um, then you're going to lose every football game. And I think that's uh, the way people just don't look at other kinds of talent that way, but it's it's really uh, kind of critical in organizational development and business and these kinds of things. Good. We may, we may come back to that in a future show. Yes. That is a, a very deep topic. Um, I would nominate two. So one, I, I just I got from Steve Jobs, but I think about it all the time, um, is um, uh, Steve once said, um, all, <laughs> this is a great, it's a classic Steve thing. Um, all of the things in the world around you uh, were designed and made by people who are no smarter than you. And I've always found that to be <laughs> a very... Is that true? Well, it was true I, I always feel they were more smarter than me. It was, it was to say it was true for Steve. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, rest, the rest of us might, 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 have a, might, be, might be pulling our, our, ourselves up for a while. Um, but like, look, there is a lot to it. Um, there, there is a lot to it, which is basically like nothing that exists around us, like just magically happened. Like, and, and, and it, it, I have to find like, I don't know if people have this experience. When I was a kid, it's kind of like, I'd always kind of have this question of like, okay, why is it that way? Um, and then the answer was always like, well, because it is right. And, and then, yeah. the, you know, the next version of the answer is like, well, because it always has been. <laughs> right. Yep. Right. And then it's like, and, and actually, you know, it's interesting. You know, when I was a kid, it was like free, free Wikipedia. And it's just like, okay, then I'm stuck. Right. Like, I'm like, okay, like, okay, that's it. That's all I'm going to find out. And like, if I wanted to like dig into like, I don't know, like, you know, why do chairs have four legs and not three or five or like any, any question. Right. It's like, okay, you know, trip to the library, kick card catalog, like, you know, interlibrary loan, like, you know, good luck. Um, you know, at least today you can just literally, it's one of my favorite uses for Wikipedia, which is like, literally just like, okay, how did that happen? <laughs> yes. um, and so, right. you know, the, the world has really opened up in that way, but the, the, the derivation of that is just like, okay, all, all this stuff got designed and built. And then when you, when you go back and you kind of dig into like, okay, who did it and how did these things come, come about? Like, you know, it's generally some crazy story, right? Like it generally is yeah. not, you know, somebody in like a big, you know, research lab doing dot, dot, dot. Like it's, you know, usually some crazy person 
out in the fringe somewhere who like had some crazy idea. Um, and like, that was the thing that took. And, and so it's, it's basically like I, the message I carried away from what he was saying is like, the world is actually a more inviting place, uh, for invention and for creativity. Uh, yeah. than it seems because like literally that's everything. Oh my, you know, my favorite book on this is the one that you recommended the tube yes. about the invention of television and how yes. like wacky that was. And just like guys, it's like trying stuff. And then all of a sudden you hit TV. <laughs> Yeah, so I'll just give the, the yeah. brief. I love that book. So it's book. It's yeah. called Tube. It's it's uh, like an MIT part of MIT history series or something. It's um, but like yeah, the, the the legend of TV. You know, is there was this guy Philo Farnsworth in San Francisco in like the 1920s who just like figured it out and that was that. But it, but it actually turns out there was like this 50 year backstory. Um, they they basically started working on TV right right around the time they got the telegraph to work. So is you know kind of around that time period, 1860s, 1870s. There were just like a bunch of crazy people who just had this idea that says, well, you know, you know, we can do sound, you know. They had radio, you know, they had radio starting to work, they had telegraphs starting to work. And so it's like, well, we could do pictures. And then, <laughs> but like, they didn't have anything. They didn't have any, they didn't have any. <laughs> that was blocks. it. Yeah, that was all that started with that idea. Like they didn't <laughs> yeah, have like, indoor, yeah. you know, this is a time where they didn't have indoor lighting yet. Right. And yeah. so the, the, the extent to which some of these people spent like decades of their life, like there's this guy that goes through the whole story of this guy, I think a Scottish guy. Um, and he literally invented and actually deployed analog television um sorry that's not right mechanical television um like television is a mechanical device so imagine like no tube you know forget even flat screens like no crt no tube no nothing like and he literally it was like spinning blocks it was like a television made out of legos (laughs) which is that that different than charles babbage's yeah yeah, yeah. original computer which is like a computer made out of wood powered by steam yeah, exactly. And so he had this thing, it would literally sit and it would spin these blocks that had different colors on them to show images. You know, it's like a 32 by 32 grid or something like that. And like the thing is sitting there all like chunking away, spinning the things. And he got it to work. Um, yeah. And yeah. He, took it, he took it to the BBC, which owned all the spectrum in the UK at that time. And he said, please, could I have a slot where I could like test this thing? Um, and, you know, of course, they thought he was like completely out of his mind. Um, and then they finally gave him, I think if I recall correctly, the Thursday night midnight slot for 15 minutes. Yeah, no, that's right. That was right. It's Thursday midnight. <laughs> to, which, to is test. Like a, which is what they gave like rap music, by the way, when it started out too. <laughs> exactly. And of course, BBC is like, yeah, look, you can have the slot. And then if there's any consumer demand, we'll expand it. Right. Yeah. And it's like, okay, consumer demand, number one, for this crazy mechanical television, but number two, at Thursday night at midnight. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, thank thank you so much you know, BBC overlords. Um, and so, and this is like, you know, what, 20 years or something before Philo Farnsworth got his thing to work or like, a, it may, you know, something like a decade or something like that. So, so anyway, the point being is like, there, there are these backstories to these things where like they were genuinely new. Um, and there, and by the way, look, like, you know, a lot of people don't pull this off. Like a lot of people, you know, a lot of people are, are this guy and not, not Philo Farnsworth, but like the thing actually had to get built. It took like a huge amount of invention and creativity to do it. Um, it ended up having a big history, you know, obviously a big impact on history, but like it, it, you know, this, this was something that people volunteered into, like there was never like a program, right. There was never like a national, I don't know, a national science foundation for television or something at that point that decided that this was going to exist. Um, and so anyway, the, 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 the whole, the whole world kind of works like that. So actually we're past eight 30. Um, why don't we leave it there? Benjamin, thank you for joining me uh, for the the first trial. Absolutely. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, We really, really appreciate it. And and a special thanks to everybody who submitted questions on Twitter. Um, They were amazing. And the ones we didn't get to today, we will get to. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Thank you, everybody. Have a great night. Okay, thank you.